0: National Theatre, spell theatre right, live, National Theatre live. There we go, Nottingham Playhouse, King George, no, wrong one, no, oh, here we go. This, sir. What? The King's Water, sir. It's blue, sir. Look, it's been this colour ever since this business began. What business? Don't be so insolent. Hmm. I guess for full effect, you'd plug it into your TV and sit five inches away from it. That's probably best. Hello, I'm Luke Jones. I've been trying to continue my theatre habit with a laptop and no theatres. I'm a broadcaster, journalist and now host of Breakfast on Times Radio, Friday to Sunday. This is a special edition of Stories of Our Times, All this week, as part of the launch of Times Radio, next Monday, the podcast is being guest-hosted by some of the station's presenters, like me. Seeing plays has been an almost weekly part of my life for as long as I can remember. New, old, dramatic, thrilling, underwhelming, riveting, faintly confusing. There's an endless variety to choose from, or at least there was coronavirus has forced them all to shut and it's not just a question of when they'll be able to reopen but also how much will be left by the time they do. Today the show must go on inside the British theatre coronavirus crisis.
2: So, the Old Vic closing was really weird. It was weird to be doing the play, which is about the after-effects of a plague, and to slowly realise a plague was descending.
0: That's Alan Cumming, a man with many hats, but for today's purpose, actor. A Tony Award-winning actor, known for Cabaret, for GoldenEye, The Smurfs 2... But most recently, he was at the Old Vic in Samuel Beckett's Endgame with Daniel Radcliffe.
2: I really have always wanted to do Beckett and I very much a fan of dance, and so it just seemed like a really great combination of things. My theory on it is
0: that it is a play that makes happy people sad and
2: sad people happy. We've just come off stage. We have. <laughs> How was <laughs> it for you, Dan? Um, I could have done better, but you were that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't have done better. <laughs> no, I could have. I think it was a rather good show. It's Saturday, Saturday night on Broadway.
0: The run started well enough, But then COVID-19 became an increasing worry. I mean, it got more
2: sort of scary. There started to be some empty seats. Started to be quite a lot of people wearing masks that we could see in the audience. And of course, if anyone coughed, if anyone had a persistent cough, that was really terrifying. And this was the early days of the whole thing, you know. And when you think about it, having a 1,000 people cough on you, cough in your direction, is not a healthy thing to do at the start of a virus. So it just became more and more... We were just basically waiting for the show to be cancelled. We knew something had to give. Broadway had closed down. And we were waiting for the British government to make some sort of edict about our safety and about the kind of welfare of the theatres. Of course, fat chance of that. And it was getting a little like, what is going on? Why are we still doing this play? Why are we coming? You know, they did things like they stopped all the people who worked in the offices of the Old Vic coming to work and they were working remotely so that there were less people we'd come into contact with in the actual building. And there was, you know, more hand sanitizer and blah, blah, blah. But it was just, it was like that really unknown time. And it just felt like we should not be gathering with a thousand people a night when other parts of the world had obviously stopped doing this. So actually what happened was that they closed down. America said that on Monday night at midnight, that would be the last time that people could come into America who weren't green card holders or citizens. And Dan lives in New York too, as well as I do, but does not have a green card order, he's not a citizen. So basically he was going to be trapped in London and he wanted to get back to his girlfriend. I wanted to make sure I got back too, although I am a citizen. So really it was kind of one of these things where we said, "What?" we kind of talked to the management and said, surely this is on the cards. What are you going to do? Surely it would be good to be ahead of the government's terrible game and close us down. So the Old Dick was the first major theatre in the West End to close down and then others followed suit. Let's go back to what feels like a decade
0: ago to March of this year. Stay at home and avoid
1: unnecessary social
0: contact. Avoid pubs, clubs, theatres and other such social venues. Hundreds of theatres across the UK have responded by closing this evening until further notice, including the National, the London Palladium and those run by the Royal Shakespeare Company.
1: I'm Kate Barra and I'm the executive director of the Old Vic. Hi, I'm Lisa Berger. I am executive director and joint chief executive at the National Theatre.
3: Catherine Mallion, the executive director at the Royal Shakespeare Company.
0: All four of us, Kate at the Old Vic, Lisa at the National and Catherine at the RSC, gathered round our laptops, dressed from the waist up, to discuss. How ruinous has it been having the doors shut all this time? For the Old Vic who went first, the decision wasn't taken lightly.
4: We locked down a few days before the official notification. We were two weeks away from the end of a sold out run of Endgame with Daniel Radcliffe and Alan Cumming.
0: And how worried were you in the build up to that point?
4: I'd just come back from a trip to New York, so it was just gathering momentum. And I arrived back and very quickly realised that something needed to be done. There wasn't Mm -hmm. masses of time to plan or prepare. And so a lot of the first few weeks and months were spent in that very crazy period of trying to mothball an entire organisation really within days.
0: And Lisa, for you over the road, looking at all of that happening two days before the advice came to shut down, what did you make of it?
1: Yes, well, we had Lehman on Broadway, so we were waiting for that to open. And we had a company of Warhorse in Australia who were supposed to be going on to Singapore afterwards. So we'd been watching it coming, if you like, from that direction and trying to understand essentially, you know, how, how fast it was all happening. You know, I look back now and think that because I think we are all such optimists, clearly... The safety of audiences and performers was hugely, hugely important to us. But we do tend to have this inbuilt optimism that the show should go on. I think we were still hoping that somehow for those people who wanted to come, we would be able to keep performing. And then we just realised that that was absolutely not what we should be doing at all, that this was a much, much bigger public health issue and we had to respond accordingly. So we had those awful conversations with the companies in which we were saying goodbye to them. It was so, so sad. And, you know, and that idea of, well, we're closed, and how do we close, and when are we ever going to get people back in again? Hard.
0: And Catherine, was that a similar set of events for you? And also, did you have a voice in your head kind of saying, well, this will be shutting for two weeks maybe, or maybe at least the productions we have on, but the rest of our season will pick up?
3: genuine, a shocking, traumatic moment. And then, of course, having to take decisions about how do you buy enough time to do the best thing. But within the context of the very um, trying financial circumstances, we all then found ourselves in. we all lost probably from 75 up into the 90% of our income just overnight. And having to decide how do you carry on then became the old consuming task, really.
0: And Lisa, for you lot at the National, how soon did you start to really worry about the balance sheet when all of this was happening?
1: Oh, quickly, very quickly, because, of course, we know that this is all about income for us. To keep the business going, it's the income and the high levels of box office that we generate that enables us to deliver our education programmes, our work with young people and our work with communities and the lifeblood of what we do is about people and it's about relationships. So we knew that somehow we had to keep paying people as much as we could because they are the future. And you know, you can see that if you're trying to pay people but you've got no income, you're going to have problems very quickly. Fortunately, very, very fortunately, we'd built up some reserves, particularly over the last four years and that we've been able to use those for a period of time to stay afloat. The government's furloughing scheme has helped a lot, but nevertheless, every month you're drawing down on those reserves such that very, very soon there'll be nothing left. Uh, And the impact of that being that we can't then be planning for what we want to do next, and we're sitting and thinking about redundancies.
4: Feels like another world talking about the
1: beginning of it, yeah. Luke, I think it's like therapy. This is like therapy,
0: <laughs> oh, you'll get the bill at the end, <laughs> <laughs> Kate. Once it became clear that we were going to be in this situation for a long while, how did you start thinking about adapting and, and staying like this for you know a number of months?
4: We have this kind of twin objectives. Obviously, there's a huge responsibility to figure out how to survive. But on the other hand, there's a really keen desire to continue to serve the beneficiaries that we work with and the public. We've tried to manage the two side by side. And the brilliance of our sector is its creativity and innovation and resilience and certain scrappiness that means that everybody comes out all guns blazing. And the ideas that we had, not just from our own team, but from all the creators that we've worked with over the last few years, were sort of overwhelming. And I suppose for us in particular, we're an independent theatre, we're not subsidised by the Arts Council. We are a charity. So to all intents and purposes, we rely on audiences coming and philanthropists giving. And that's why we exist.
0: Kate and the team rallied to set up Your Old Vic, a free online hub of resources and educational materials. They launched a podcast about plays and started putting up some of their old back catalogue, which is all very well, but it doesn't make them much dollar. At the Old Vic, they don't receive any public funding, so it was a case of shaking down their corporate sponsors and kindly philanthropists.
4: In an elegant way, yes. Um but actually, and we found we found this a number of crunch points over the last five years that I've been at the Old Vic, they've actually come to us. I think the strength of the relationships that probably all of us have with our major supporters are such that when there is a problem, they pick up the phone. So the very first person to pick up the phone was the chief executive of Royal Bank of Canada, who's our principal partner, and immediately said, Kate, what can we do? And that kind of support and solidarity is so moving, actually, at a time when you are really desperate in some ways to know that you have people who will instinctively reach out to you is probably testament to the institution and the building. But ultimately, you don't give to a thing you give to a group of people who are doing something that moves you or that you believe in.
0: And Catherine, what about you with the RSC in terms of the bottom line? Was there anything that you thought we need to start doing, be that picking up the phone to your sort of corporate supporters or any kind of money grabbing ideas that you could think of? <laughs>
3: yeah, so, so the same, Our our support has continued really strongly. I mean, understanding that we're all here for the long term. So let's keep supporting as well. Primarily, it's um, the philanthropic support from the large corporates and from ticket purchasers who often are choosing to donate the value of their ticket rather than take a refund or hold the money on credit. So at all levels, there's support and engagement and people coming forward who maybe have just bought a few tickets from us in the past and now wanting to join as members or patrons and and contribute. The actual Filling the gap of the lost box office just can't be done by donation. It needs to either be the full audiences with their confidence back or while we'll build up to that, we need to generate new forms of support and and government investment in order to reopen.
0: Because because what what chunk of your budget is is box office?
3: Well, ours is about 60 percent. I mean, it's a chunky amount.
0: And Lisa, same question. Once it became clear that we were going to be in this position for weeks, months, creative and money side, what were your immediate thoughts?
1: What could we do to get work out to audiences and thinking about all those people who were isolated in lockdown? And we had the fortunate thing of the NT Live catalogue, which is the filmed in cinemas broadcasts that we do Normally, they could be made available on YouTube to everybody for free. I think for all of us, actually, our teams have been amazing, the way that they've stepped up and dealt with this whole world of remote working, because what we do is bring people together. We're not used to being apart. But the very important thing in thinking about that is that's what we do. We bring audiences together together. And we thought that with what we called NT at Home, even if people were in their homes separately, they could contact friends and family and they could all arrange to watch the show at the same moment.
3: What's the matter, honey? You lost?
2: They told me to take a street call named Desire and then transfer to one called Cemeteries and ride at six blocks and get off at Elysian Fields.
4: In a England, dog. I will have a smart front door.
1: I will have a dining room, a starched white tablecloth embroidered with bows. I'm Helen Mirren
4: and welcome to the National Theatre at Home quiz. The first question is, by what name did the Romans call Ireland?
1: We said we'll have a curtain up moment at seven o'clock in the evening and then people can arrange to meet remotely for a drink in the interval or to talk about it at the end. And I remember somebody asked me on a radio interview what I hoped the uptake would be. And without thinking, I said, well, over 10 years, we've had 10 million. That would be nice. And I thought, why on earth did I say that? That was a ridiculous (laughs) thing to say. There's no way that's going to happen. (laughs) But yeah, actually, it was amazing. And we got to an audience of 10 million in about six weeks. And also, so great. The donations that we had in, you know, again, echo what Kate and Catherine said, the way people, at large and small, have supported us is just, yeah, so overwhelming. It makes us realise that what we do in terms of the culture, the way that we can entertain, challenge, make people just feel alive is really something that's so important.
0: I remember at some point during all of this, there being a suggestion that some of the big theatres could... Collapse. The Globe was one which lots of people were talking about for a time of being sort of near the brink. How close to ruin, if that doesn't sound too dramatic, were any of you in either your whole business or a sort of wing of your business?
1: We are right now. I mean, that is the reality that absolutely this moment, we're all contemplating redundancies. We know that it's forecast that 70% of theatres will close by Christmas because of this catastrophic loss of income. I think, well, I hope you say that we're all sounding quite calm and rational, but actually we are just working around the clock to get hold of very, very urgent government support. Some of us are in the fortunate position of having reserves, but they will be gone very, very soon.
0: Kate, what about you? How close to the brink are things at your end? And what has that done to your working life in terms of, I imagine, it's been a very fraught few months
4: you know, the situation is dire for us and for all others. You can't operate a business with fixed costs with no income. So ultimately, when the reserves are plundered to the extent that they are being right now, there will come a period close to the autumn when it's not possible to reopen the theatre in the way that we would want to or that you would recognise. You know, I think someone joked the other day that they were on business plan 1004. And I think that will probably resonate for Catherine and Lisa. But, you know, the endless scenario planning, and because we are operating with such little information. And so what we need is a bridge to get us back into operation.
0: Let's talk reopening and the plan as it stands, as, as far as you can say. In an ideal world, Catherine, what what happens now?
3: In order for us to be operating back in full, we need to be able to be in a position to be developing audience confidence and, and opening our theatres. At the moment, we don't have clearance to, to open theatres for audiences for obvious reasons. So what we need to happen is to have some, when it's time to do it, some clear, confident government advice that therefore endorses safety and confidence of the audiences so that they feel happy to come back. We know they're desperate to come back. We know from all our surveys that the audiences want to be back, but they need to be safe and secure to do so.
0: And Lisa, you, you're nodding along with some of that, but the, the the bailout aspect, if you were in charge, let's imagine, what would it be?
1: Oh, it's got to be a really big sum. I mean, as I say, we all started with reserves, And to be able to operate confidently, to be able to make commitments again, we need to have some reserves back in. Because, you know, we we talk about reserves. Reserves are cash at the end of the day. And that's what you need.
0: And and I wonder, Kate, if I could sort of play devil's advocate and say, you know, why is it that your sector, why is it that UK theatre should get this money to bolster you back to where you were before in terms of your ambitions and cash reserves when... Businesses have gone under. Some of them will have to sort of clip their wings for a few years because, you know, we've all been through this. Why would you be a special case?
4: I think it comes back to that dual purpose the fact that we're an economic contributor and we're a provider of a genuine support service for the nation. Everybody wants the economy to be restarted. Everybody wants that sense of rebirth for the nation after this period. And if you have a town or a city with empty theatres and boarded up shops and restaurants that are closed down, you're not going to be able to do anything that you want to do in terms of the rebirth of of the country. For every pound spent in a theatre, five pounds in London is spent on ancillary activity around, going to a restaurant, getting on a train, coming on a plane. All of those things feed into the money that's spent on our sector. So we are not just being supported for ourselves. We're actually helping reboot tourism, reboot hospitality. There is the work on stage and then there's just this ripple effect. Theatres are civic centres, the ability they have to both bring artistic work to audiences but also to serve the community that they're placed within and that's the wonderful thing about a theatre building and that's the kind of thing that I think we should be trying to preserve because otherwise there will be closures. When the old Vic went into trouble in 98, it was going to be sold and there were three bidders, a lap dancing club, a bingo hall and a group of philanthropists. And fortunately, the group of philanthropists won the bid. But you can imagine a world where they didn't. And so that's just a small example of what could happen all over the country if you see theatre buildings closed.
1: This happens to theatres around the country. And once they're closed, getting them open again is the very hardest thing. What you want is a UK which has vibrant theatres all over it as part of this recovery. We're willing, able, wanting to do that as as civic hubs having said that yes i'm working on the south bank you can see people are back and around and that some people are very very keen and anxious to come back in so i think we just need to work with people to make sure that they feel happy comfortable audiences staff performers uh, that it's a good environment to be in
0: no one really has a clue what's going to happen next Reserves will continue to be drawn down on. Redundancies are being considered. Every penny of government help is being eaten up. The Old Vic, the first to shut, will be, technically speaking, the first to reopen. They've sold loads of tickets. It's a glitzy A-list cast back on the stage, but no-one actually in the auditorium.
4: We're taking Lungs, which was a play by Duncan Macmillan and um, that we did back in um, the autumn last year um, with Matt Smith and Claire Foy, and they gamely... Contacted Matthew, our artistic director, straight away when this happened and said, what can we do with lungs? Surely there's something we can do. It's there and it's ready and it's just the two of us. Could we put the two of them on stage just with a laptop and Zoom and see whether we could create a live performance experience for people sitting at home. And we have charged money for that. And for those that want to join us and support us and pay the money that they would be paying this week if we weren't in lockdown to come to the old Vic, please give it to us and help us survive through this period.
2: I was wondering how on earth we're going to be able to sort of make theatre function. Alan coming again. It's obvious that people aren't going to want to gather in in a theatre for a very long time, probably until there's a, a vaccine. I know I don't want to, but I think this is a really great way to get around it. And, you know, I think the people at the Old Vic have always been very clever and innovative and... They are fighting for survival, of course. As a not-for-profit theatre company, they are just kind of scraping by anyway. So I think in those sort of situations, you get very resourceful. So I'm excited to see that they're opening again and having these performances. I really feel for the performers because so performing in an empty theatre is going to be weird.
0: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Luke Jones, and my guests, Executive Director of The Old Vic, Kate Vara, Chief Executive of the RSC, Catherine Mallion, and Chief Executive of the National Theatre, Lisa Berger, and the actor Alan Cumming. If you're a regular, you might have heard this week my Times Radio co-host, Jenny Kleeman, on the challenge of international surrogacy in a global pandemic, John Pinar on Test and Trace in the UK, and Asma Mir on Parenting and Race. Tune in tomorrow to hear Stig Abel tell you why he has no friends. Do join him, he needs the company. On today's episode, the producers were Asya Fuchs and Leona Hamid. Executive producer is Leo Hornack. And the deputy executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Carla Patella. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, then why on earth wouldn't you? Do us a favour and do tune in to Times Radio when we launch on Monday, the 29th of June. So it's not just our mums listening. It's free. We won't take any money off you. You'll be able to find us on DAB, on your smart speaker, online at times.radio via the Times Radio app. Or if you're quiet and keep yourself to yourself, you can sit in the corner of the studio and listen there. I'll be on every Friday, Saturday and Sunday morning from 6am. See you then.